The New Testament account of Jesus facing temptation in the wilderness is more than just a story about our Savior overcoming evil. It's Jesus' personally crafted roadmap for us to stay on the covenant path. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. Once again, uh, should you care to contact the show, my email address is gt at gospeltoctrine.com or contact me uh, through my inbox on our Gospel Doctrine Facebook page. If you uh, are listening to this show online, you don't know how to you don't know how to subscribe. Had a few questions about that. In your on your smartphone, there probably already is a podcast app. If you have a an iPhone that will just be called Apple Podcasts, and uh, on Android it's Google Podcasts. Just search for Gospel Doctrine, or you can go to our SoundCloud page. Uh, go to SoundCloud.com and search for Gospel Doctrine. You can listen on your desktop computer. Um, and if you have more problems, please email me. I'll help you to subscribe. Uh, and again, your your five star reviews on Facebook and on iTunes. Uh, help spread the word about this podcast and get more people to be involved. And it's a uh, as you know, it's a totally free service, and it helps people to, I hope, it helps people to uh, be prepared for their Sunday school lessons and to feel the Spirit of God. So please uh, spread the word as you can. This week's question comes from Mallory. She says, I'm wondering if you have any book suggestions for learning more about the Jewish customs and daily life. Uh, she's uh, uh, Mallory, I'm going to assume that you're talking about during New Testament times, since we're studying the New Testament right now. And so, yes, I will make a few recommendations. Feel free to just rewind. I'm going to make them quickly, uh, maybe faster than you could write them down. But uh, there, there are obviously hundreds and thousands of books out there about uh, Jewish life around the time of Jesus. So I'll just give you a few, and I think uh, most of these will be more useful from a Latter-day Saint perspective. Simply Jesus uh, written by Wright is a good book, and as we as we get farther along in the year, we'll start studying the uh, epistles of Paul. There's a book called The New Perspective on Paul, an introduction. That's written by uh, Yinger. Why, I'm just going to give you the last names of the authors. Y-I-N-G-E-R. Um, not, I guess I'm not going to give you all the last names. James Goldberg is a... Uh, is a teacher at BYU, somebody from a Jewish and a Hindu background, but he writes for the church. And he's written a book called The Five Books of Jesus. It's it's sort of like a novelization of the Gospels. Um, uh, Huntsman has written a book, Becoming the Beloved Disciple, Coming Unto Christ Through the Gospel of John. And uh, there's, a t- there's a podcast you might like, Mark, Mark Goodacre, and uh, he's, a, he's a New Testament scholar at Duke. And he has a New Testament, it's NT Pod podcast series. So that's very, that's very helpful. Um, I really enjoy m- exploring my strange Bible. That is a podcast by Tim Mackey. And there's also a book by Welch, Sermon at the Temple and Sermon on the Mount. That's uh, comparing the accounts we have of the teachings of Jesus from the, from the Bible and from the Book of Mormon. That should get you started. Please repeat that question if, uh, if you feel like that's not enough information for you, and and uh, be happy to respond again. Thank you so much for that question. Also, uh, uh, Mary has commented that last time I pronounced Nike, Nike, and uh, I have to say, Mary, I grew up calling it Nike, and old habits die hard. I'm, I'm, she works at, at Nike, and so she has told me the correct pronunciation. I'm willing to pronounce it that way for your sake, but I, if you want me to start saying uh, calling a Porsche a Porsche, um, you're out of luck. Thanks for your thanks for your emails. Please keep them coming. Happy to respond to those on the program. This week's lesson is Matthew Matthew chapter four, Luke chapters four and five. This is actually the tale of the temptation of Christ in the wilderness in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. The scriptures in our lesson in our uh, Come Follow Me lesson actually cover more than that, and I'll refer to them briefly here at the beginning. But there's just so much going on in Jesus' experience with Satan in the wilderness that we're going to spend almost all of our time there. So 
I'll just say that when Jesus comes back from being tested in the wilderness, then he begins to, the, the message that he begins to preach is, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And uh, this is the same message that John the Baptist was teaching. So it, it's just interesting because when we think of a kingdom, if you were to, if you were to pick up a story, a, uh, a fairy tale, and you were to read about a kingdom, you would expect there to be a king or a queen in charge, somebody who's powerful and they have an army underneath them, and then maybe some nobles, some dukes, and, and then at the very bottom you'd have all the serfs and the peasants and the commoners. This is sort of how a kingdom is expected to act, or is expected to exist. And this is how the world has existed. And the idea is that the most important people come first. So right away, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he starts teaching about a different kind of kingdom. And that's going to be highlighted in, in this lesson, but especially next time. In um, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus really starts getting across what kind of kingdom it is that he's talking about. The main point is that Jesus is the king, and he doesn't act at all like a king. So Matthew has taken incredible pains to show us Jesus is the king of Israel. He is this promised Messiah, and the Messiah is, is prophesied to be a powerful and conquering king. David and Solomon were that kind of a king, and the Messiah was promised to be to fulfill everything that they began, to be sort of the, the pinnacle of the kind of king that the Israelites had come to expect. There were some indications in the scriptures that it might be a little different, but you had to be you had to be humble, you had to be really looking for them, you had to be willing to see. And there were also plenty of indications that the Messiah would come in force, it would be a powerful and earthly salvation figure and would be politically unassailable as well as physically unassailable instead of simply morally unassailable. So Jesus is flying in the face of a lot of accepted wisdom in the kind of king that he is proving himself to be. So right away he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning you have to change. You have to change. And this, and this, this recurring theme throughout the New Testament, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first, is the main idea of what kind of kingdom this is. You can think of it as, it's been, I've, I've heard of it referred to many times as the up, upside-down kingdom of Jesus. So it all rests on his shoulders. As Jesus says, Who, whoso would be greatest, greatest, we hear this later, as his disciples begin to see that uh, there's really something to Jesus and, and then they start to feel important. They start arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, look, if you want to be the greatest, you're the servant of everyone. And he was being humble in that moment, but it was, it's pretty clear to see. He was referring to himself. The greater you want to be, the more you take on from those around you. The more of their suffering, the more of their pains, the more of their work. You start to fade into the distance. You, the first person that you think of becomes the last. And... That's a difficult concept because, number one, um, we're all inherently selfish. And number two, it's not a good idea to completely forget about ourselves um, and to think that, to, to consider that we don't matter, right? So there's an important balance to be struck there. And Jesus obviously knew how to hit it perfectly, and none of the rest of us do. So that is the nature of the kingdom of Jesus. So that's uh, that scripture is the second half of... Matthew chapter 4 and some of the other scriptures, Jesus in our chapters in Luke, Jesus goes into Nazareth and he begins teaching and he says, he reads that, that incredible verse from Isaiah where he says, the spirit of God is upon me. I've been called to proclaim liberty to the captive, and I'm paraphrasing, and to the poor and the acceptable year of the Lord, restoring of sight to the blind. And then, and then everyone's watching him and he says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And so those who uh, had been reading this scripture for centuries had understood it to be Isaiah speaking in the first person, saying, the Spirit of God is upon me as a prophet to proclaim all of these things. And the acceptable year of the Lord is when, is when God is going to begin to accomplish this marvelous work that he's always talked about, that the nature of living in Jerusalem and, and the, the places round about Jerusalem 
is going to change and life is going to start to be where people to be lived in the sort of way where people have taken the word of God into their hearts. The very nature of existence is going to be blessed in a way that the people living beforehand could not even even have comprehended. So that's the acceptable year of the Lord. And everyone has taken this scripture for centuries to be Isaiah speaking in the first person. And now we realize, as Jesus speaks these words, we realize Isaiah said it in the first person in order to set Christ up to have this utterance in his hometown synagogue. So Jesus returns back to his hometown after he's already gained uh, a little bit of notoriety as a healer and a preacher with somebody with authority to cast out devils. And he's already got a little bit of a following. And he goes to his hometown and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Uh, and we've, we've seen that, right? In the baptism of Jesus, we, we saw the spirit of God descend on him like a dove and God's approval shining down on him. And he is there to say, this is the acceptable year of the Lord, except that it's not the way you think. It's instead of uh, this kingdom being the sort of kingdom you've come to expect, when you, when you hear about a king coming, when the good news has been thy God reigneth, and now here I am to tell you about a kingdom that's upside down. It's exactly the opposite of how you've expected. They don't like it at all. Uh, and, and Jesus goes one step further, and he likens all, all the people there to uh, the, the wicked people during the time of Elijah and Elisha. The, those were the most wicked people. The, the nation of Israel was, shortly, was destroyed shortly thereafter. And he's saying uh, Elijah was chosen to go to one, just one woman. Elisha chose, chose, was chosen to heal only one leper uh, during their time. And so there were all these wicked people round about. And he says, uh, those are the only people who believed in those prophets. So the parallel is obvious that you, the people of, of modern day Nazareth, are instead of being like these blessed people who, to whom the, these ancient prophets ministered, you are like the people that uh, were flouting the the commandments of God at the time and were eventually destroyed. And so they try to kill him for it, or at least throw him off the top of a hill and hurt him very badly. And uh, Jesus escapes from that, perhaps through supernatural means and perhaps not. And speaking of Elijah and Elisha, one of the, you know, last, last week we talked about the baptism of Jesus, and I mentioned a lot of stories of water in the Old Testament. And as I, after I'd finished uploading the episode and and uh, I was writing my blurbs that I put on social media about it. I, w- I was writing the phrase, uh, Jesus takes up his mantle. And I realized that I had forgotten the story of Elijah and Elisha crossing over Jordan. So I thought I'd briefly mention that. Um, G- the baptism of Jesus has symbolism and, and um, a, a, is representative of so many Old Testament stories. And, and that's one that I forgot to mention where... where Elijah and Elisha go across the Jordan. Elijah is going to be taken up into heaven, and he takes off his mantle, smites the water, and it parts. And then Elijah is taken up into heaven. His mantle falls down to the ground. Elisha puts it on and then smites the water again with it and crosses back over Jordan. And so uh, here, to me, it's reminiscent of the story of John the Baptism and Jesus. Now, Elisha, Elijah was known as a wild man of the desert because he lived, he, he, he was, had this hairy garment and he was even known as a hairy man, but probably because of his hairy garment. And uh, he, he looked in exactly the manner that John the Baptist, Baptist is described. Uh, and that came to be a stereotypical way of representing a prophet. And so Jesus takes up the mantle of John the Baptist when he crosses over the Jordan. And the Old Testament is, the book of Kings is very careful to show that Elisha is a greater prophet than Elijah by having him depicted performing double the number of miracles. And so uh, the, the symbolism there is also very clear. I thought I'd mention something I forgot last week. Um, so let's, let's talk about this, this experience that Jesus has immediately after. And we've referred to it briefly by saying that um, when, we, when we talked about the Exodus last week and Jesus is driven into the wilderness... And then he spends 40 days where Israel spent 40 years after leaving Egypt. So that, that comparison has already been made obvious by Matthew, that Jesus is Israel. 
and when he is uh, passing through the Jordan, this, this is representative of all of these Old Testament stories, but especially the Exodus. And so Jesus has escaped slavery, and then the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. So we'll continue this, and, th- and this continues the likening of this story to the Exodus because um, Israel had a number of experiences beyond just walking through the Red Sea. And one of those first experiences was they started to doubt. Right away they said, we're, we're going to die of starvation, we're going to die of thirst. And um, so it says, first of all, let's talk about the nature of uh, what happens to Jesus and, and where this story might have come from uh, so that we can understand what comes next. Jesus is driven, as it says, driven by the Spirit of, of God to be tempted and th- this word tempt, um, first of all, the, the translation, it is getting part of it right. And uh, the, the word that it's coming from is, is this Greek word, perazo, which is to, um, which is more accurately perhaps rendered to test. It's, it's, it's a, the idea is that we're going to be revealing the truth about something underneath. And it comes, there are two words in Greek and in Hebrew for tempt. And it's interesting, on my mission, we had, uh, we had one word for to tempt and to try. When you tried to do something and when you, when you were tempted of the devil, it was the same word. And that's the kind of the idea that I, I'd like to get across right now is we don't, um, and that word in, in Latin is tentare. And we don't have that. We have two words. And tempt, you would never say, I'm going to tempt you to follow the commandments. Um, tempting is, in, in English, is solely used to get somebody to do something evil. But this word perazzo has just half of that meaning. It, it means to reveal the truth. And it, it does carry a, a connotation of, if there's evil here, we've got to find it out. Um, we're trying to make sure there's no evil. So as I was, as I was studying this, I was thinking of when I, uh, was studying to be a pilot and I took my check ride, um, and I, I had been told by my flight instructor, don't, this guy's going to try to distract you as you're flying the plane. And as you're taxiing around, he's going to try to get you to stop paying attention to what you're doing and do something inconsequential. And then he's going to fail you. And, uh, I forgot what he I forgot what he'd said. So we're taxiing along, and the the examiner's sitting in the seat next to me, and I'm controlling the plane. And he says to me, "What does this little switch do over here?" And I and I glance briefly at it, and I I realized I didn't know, and that worried me because part of the test is I have to know everything that is in that plane. I have to know what it does, or else I'm not competent in my own airplane. And I found out later it was a switch that that changed his headphones from stereo to mono. So it really didn't matter. But at that moment, I, I had a brief moment of panic and I forgot what my flight instructor had said, you know, don't, don't let him distract you. Luckily, I did remember the other thing my flight instructor had said which, about taxiing, which was, if you're taxiing that airplane, do not take your eyes off of the taxiway for even one second. And so I remembered that and I glanced over there, and I didn't know what it was, and I thought, well, if I fail because of that, then, oh well, I just, I can't look away from what I'm doing. So I said, I, I don't know the answer right now. Luckily for me, that was, that was good enough. Now, was that, in one sense, in the, in the sense that Jesus was being tempted, this flight examiner, he was tempting me. He was trying to get me to do something wrong, but not because uh, he wanted me to fail, but because he was trying to reveal the truth so Jesus was about to embark on the most important ministry of human history. And for him to do that without being tested would be no more appropriate than it would for me to try to exercise the privileges of a pilot certificate without a check ride. And so this, when, we, when we read that the Spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness, that's how we can take this, is that Jesus had to be tested. Now, there's another figure in this story, which is Satan. And let's talk a little bit about where Satan comes from, the idea of Satan. Um, 
And, and I think a good place to begin is the book of Job, because Job gives us an idea. I mean, obviously, the, the first place we meet up with Satan is in, is in Genesis, when the serpent, and he's not called Satan, he's called the serpent, is tempting Adam and Eve. But this, this figure, Hasatan, or the, the adversary, the enemy, the opponent, shows up in Job and is talking to God and says, hey, you've got a servant, Job. God says, you know, consider my servant Job, how righteous he is, and, this, and the opponent, the adversary. Or, or you might even translate it as the prosecutor says, yeah, but Job is being righteous because you blessed him. And God, and, and so it's interesting in the story of Job that God's the one who says, all right, we'll take the blessings away. We'll see how Job does. And so God and Satan are almost like on the, on the same team in that they're working together to reveal the truth about Job. That's, that's a very Jewish Old Testament way of looking at Hasatan, the opponent. All right, they didn't, they didn't see him as someone who is so evil, they, they just wanted you to do evil. He just wanted you to do evil. They saw him as somebody who is uh, like a prosecutor in a court of law. They're going to put this theory to the test, and if you're found guilty, you're found guilty, and if not, you're not. Uh, then when the Jews are exiled to Persia, they encounter a group called the Zoroastrians, a very old religion, monotheistic religion, in which the entire universe is set up as a place for good to encounter evil and overcome it. And that's when the idea of who Satan is begins to change. And Satan, uh, and, and I'm not saying that they were correct before that and incorrect after, um, in fact, uh, you, if you want to know who Satan is, what his origin is, uh, you, need, you need modern revelation for that. Um, and if you want to know, the, the Bible, and especially the New Testament, says nothing about why there would be a figure like Satan. Uh, and the Old Testament also says nothing about why there would be such a figure in a world that God has created and then pronounced good. And then all of a sudden, the serpent shows up or uh, an opponent shows up. Why would, why would there be evil in a world that God saw and said it was very good? So that, that question is answered in the Book of Mormon, uh, but it is not answered in the Bible. So we're, we're left to wonder, why, why is evil here? But we're also left to wonder, where is this evil coming from? We're tracing the idea right now of who Satan is. And so we, we see him sort of evolve over time from just a mere prosecutor, somebody who is trying, almost like a flight examiner, trying to make sure you're doing it correctly. And if not, they'll fail you. And that's because you, you know, you shouldn't be out there flying around unless you're ready for the, for the responsibility. To somebody who actively wants your ill, wants your eternal damnation. And Satan has been represented in all kinds of ways and, and, you know, with, with horns and a pitchfork all the way to um, a monk with talons on his feet. Obviously, Satan has a way of showing up in a way that's appealing to the natural man, what we would call the natural man. Other than that, we don't know. Did, was there some physical manifestation? Was it a voice that Jesus heard in his head? Uh, we don't know exactly what form this took, and it doesn't really matter. The point is that... Uh, it wasn't a gargoyle. It wasn't, it wasn't a winged creature that had red skin that showed up uh, with Jesus here in the wilderness. It was a manifestation of that kind of evil that seeks to do us harm and seeks to have us doubt the things that matter. So, um, the first lesson is that, uh, well, the, fir the first temptation, let's talk a little bit about what happened. Jesus is fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and then afterwards he's hungry. So the, 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 the gospel writers get points for over uh, the, the understatement of the year award right there. Uh, he hasn't been eating for 40 days, and so this right away, this is, we can see this as sort of a, there's a supernatural element to the story. Jesus is suffering beyond any mortal's capacity to suffer. Now think about that for a second, and we, we don't encounter that again until Jesus has his Garden of Gethsemane moment and then carries his cross and takes upon him the sin of the world. 
right here at the beginning of his ministry, he's already suffering more than a mortal ability. He's beyond anyone's... You and I could, could last a few days without food. Uh, well, we could last about three days without water, and we could last about 30 days without food. Within about a week, we'd be too weak to walk around. Within two weeks, you would, you would be bedridden. You'd have to be fed. And within 30 days, you would die of starvation. And that's if you started out in very, very good health. So Jesus is still, he's alone in the desert, and he's still walking around, and he's been 40 days without food. So he's, he's beyond all mortal endurance with his hunger. And we can presume that, um, you know, when you, when you don't eat, your, hung, your stomach shrinks, you're not as hungry. We can presume that he is being allowed to feel every, every ounce of that hunger to the point where it's extremely uh, distressing. So at the, he's at the end of his fast, and then Satan appears. Then, the, then, then it's time for Jesus to be tested. It's time for him to be tried. And the truth about Jesus to be revealed. Now, right, now this is, what, what Satan says to Jesus is, if, you, if thou, first thing he says is, if you really are the Son of God, then take these rocks. You can, you can make bread out of these rocks. And then you'll have something to eat. So we can stop right there for a second and just examine the nature of this temptation. First of all, it's a temptation to do something that's totally fine to do, which is to eat bread. But how did, Jesus, how did Satan begin it? He said, if you're the son of God. So wh- where had Jesus just come from? I guess it had been 40 days by this point, but it hadn't been, you know, in the account of the Bible, it hadn't been that long ago that he'd been baptized and God himself had uh, appeared in the cloud and spoken and said, behold, my beloved son. So Jesus had had an experience where he knew who he was. There was no doubt about it. And here he was being called upon to question it. And at this point, I think it's appropriate for us to examine where did this story come from? Where do we get this account of Jesus in the wilderness? It's it appears in exactly the same place in all three of the synoptic gospels. And so we, we, can, we can make a few assumptions or con- we can draw a few conclusions about this fact. First of all, Jesus is alone. And second of all, this, this story shows up pretty consistently. The, the order of some of those temptations are mixed around a little bit sometimes, but the story shows up pretty consistently in the same place and with the same characters and Jesus is alone. So the obvious conclusion is Jesus himself is the one, is the source of this story. He had to come back and tell his disciples about it. From that, we can conclude Jesus needed us to know what had happened to him in the wilderness. So let's, so as we think about why he would have done that, what was his, what was Jesus's goal in relating this story? And the other thing we can conclude is he told it often enough and to enough people and he told it consistently enough that it appeared in all of these different accounts. So these different writers of the Gospels, uh, using whatever sources they could come up with, presumably not the exact same ones, came up with a substantially similar account of Jesus going through this experience right at the same time in his life. In other words, this was a very important story to Jesus to have us read. The feeling that I have in thinking about this is similar to the feeling that I have when you think about the Book of Mormon, Moroni calls it a voice from the dust, right? He's, he and his father compiled and wrote this book for our day. They saw our day and they knew exactly what we would need to read and to understand about God in order to uh, be led to him. And that was the purpose of the Book of Mormon. The, the people living at the time of, book of, of the Book of Mormon did not have that book. And so we are the ones who have the Book of Mormon. It was written for us. And similarly, Jesus prepared this story, not for the people of his day, but for the people who would read the accounts that would be written after he was gone. And that applies, obviously, it, it, it's not like we had to wait until Joseph Smith's time to get this story. It's, it's applied for thousands of years now. But it wasn't for his immediate disciples to understand, for his dis- disciples during his life. It was for people to understand later. As they started to learn what it meant to be part of the kingdom of Jesus, then they would, 
they would encounter the story right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and they would be forced to ask themselves the question. They would, they would encounter this question, why did Jesus have to be tempted? What, is this, uh, what does this mean for me? The, and the, the inescapable conclusion is Jesus is going through an experience that all of us are going to have to go through, and he's going through it in a way that is a lesson for us. And as we examine each of these three temptations, we're going to see in each of them temptations that appear in our own lives in one way or another. Uh, every temptation we come across is, is a variation on one of these three. Now, I th- as I thought more and more about how it, how it was for Jesus to go through this, it, it's impossible for us to know. Was it difficult for Jesus to resist temptation? Um, you know, I... I go back and forth on this question because if Jesus was perfect, right, there's no, there's no evil desires in his heart. He doesn't have any of the insecurities and any of the, the doubts and any of the carnal needs or the failed priorities that lead us to entertain, even for a moment, these terrible temptations. And some of them not so terrible, but, but uh, if, we, if we pay attention to them for too long, they'll lead us into very bad places. Um, could it really have been difficult for him to resist them? So part of me thinks it, this was really easy. And then part of me thinks this is everything. Satan is throwing at Jesus everything he has. He is hitting him with the atomic bomb of temptations because this is his big chance to derail the entire plan of salvation. And if Jesus is really going to be tested, uh, he's being tested like no one before or since. And so how could it not have been hard, even for him, to go through what he was going through? Uh, If you want to weigh in on that, please feel free to email me. I don't have an answer, but it's worth thinking about. In any case, Jesus has this first temptation where he's extremely hungry, and here's this this offer. If if you are the Son of God, he's he's being called upon to doubt who he is, and he has to prove it. If you're the Son of God, then take these stones and make them into bread. And Jesus responds with a scripture. He says, uh, he says, man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And uh, this is a reference to a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, where God is telling Moses, is, God has shared with Moses as Moses is sharing with the Israelites, God gave you manna, so you would know that God doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, um, God didn't give the Israelites manna so that they would be hungry like Jesus was. He gave them manna so that they would be full. And they would know that bread by itself was simply not enough. So it's, it's a misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying to say, okay, we need to ignore our earthly needs. Jesus wasn't saying man doesn't need bread. What he was saying was, man doesn't only need bread, but we we have this deep-seated need to not only have our bodies be alive, but to have our spirits be alive. As men, we're not animals. We we need to we need to fight not only our physical death, but our spiritual death. The separation that exists between us and God, and we seek for the meaning of life, which is according to every tradition that anybody who heard Jesus talk would have understood, the, their meaning of wisdom was how to live in a right way according to God, how to orient yourself toward God. So man doesn't live by bread alone is a, is a very powerful message that says we want to, in our lives, make connections among each other and between us and God that, that show us that there's more than just this earthly existence, that there's more than just bread every day, but there's words of God. So it's, it, it's not him saying, we need, to, we need to every day read the scriptures. It's Jesus, I mean, of course, he's, he, he wouldn't disagree with that, but he's saying, we have the need for nourishment to our spirits that keeps those spirits alive every bit as much as we have need to nourishment for our, our bodies that keeps them alive. Bread is nowhere near enough for the kind of beings we are. We're as much spiritual beings as we are physical beings. 
And in other words, he, he doesn't even answer the question that Satan asks, which is, you know, how do you feel about whether you're the son of God or not? Are you going to respond to this doubt that I've tried to put into your mind? Jesus doesn't engage with that doubt. But that is Satan's, one of Satan's first and most powerful tactics is to try to make Jesus doubt. Who are you? What is your identity? Even though you've been told and you've been shown that God cares about you and loves you, you're his beloved son and the Spirit has led you, I'm going to make you doubt that you're a son of God. And Jesus doesn't engage with that. Now, interestingly, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and uh, you know it's worthwhile to read the verse that, that we just read, which is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. That's the verse that Jesus quoted. But right before it, Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thy heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. So this is Moses telling the Israelites why they were led through the wilderness for forty years, where Jesus was led through the wilderness for forty days, to humble them and to prove them. And this word prove is one of the other words so they're one of the other words for test. And to uh, peirazo is one of them in Greek. And the other one is dokimadzo, which is to prove something good. Uh, so one of them is more is closer on the temptation side of the scale. And the, we, neither of them can be exactly translated into English. But, but test is a pretty good one. And prove is another pretty good one. Um, that this dokimadzo is we, we, I, God, wanted to prove you, Israel, in the wilderness by showing that you would do the things that uh, I commanded you. And we, we run across this, this word um, in a couple of other places, one where we don't have any sort of ancient language attached to it in the book of Abraham. Uh, we will prove them now herewith to see if they will do the things that the Lord commandeth them. Right? God sends us to earth for the same reason that he took the Israelites through the wilderness was to prove us. And we see it in the book of Malachi when God himself says, uh, here is your commandment to bring your tithes into my storehouse and prove me now herewith to see if I won't do everything that I've promised to do and give you such a blessing you can't even receive it. So we'll talk more about that later. Uh, the idea that we prove God. Um, but back to what happened with Jesus and the and the bread, by making reference to this verse in Deuteronomy chapter eight, he's also making reference to the to the verse before it, which shows the purpose of why Israel was sent into the wilderness. The first thing that Israel did was they started to complain. And they said, We are out of water, and Moses had to perform this miracle uh, to make water come from a rock. And then they said, oh, we're out of food. And then they said, oh, we, you know, man has gotten boring. We want some meat. And they kept saying, we wish we were back in Egypt, right? We wish we could go back to the flesh pots of Egypt, these cauldrons where we used to cook meat stew. We wish we could go back and have enough to eat. We would be willing to be in slavery if we could only go back to Egypt and have enough to eat. So that when Israel was tested, they were proved and they failed. The, the test was, are you going to come out of Egypt spiritually as well as physically? And so this, uh, this if you remember the story of Peter denying the Christ three times, and then Jesus coming back and saying, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Getting the chance three times to make it right. There's something similar going on here, which is... Uh, Israel has gone through the wilderness and questioned God and failed their test. And here is Jesus saying, I'm going through the same test. I have come across the exact same experience they had, which is I'm short of food and water. And instead of saying, yes, I will do anything, I'd rather return to slavery in order to, to keep my body alive. I skip right to the lesson at the end that God gave to Moses, which is man doesn't live by bread alone. Man has a deeper need. And even if our test in this costs us our, uh, our physical life, right? There have been plenty of martyrs, and there are people being martyred today in the cause of Christ. 
there's something Jesus is saying. There's something more important. Your life is not just the life of your body. There's a deeper meaning to life, and it's and it's so important that it's worth not changing stones into bread, and it's certainly worth not doubting the truth of your existence. Okay, the next temptation is Jesus. And I and as a kid, I always imagined this happening miraculously, but. Um, the devil takes him to the top of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, right? And I always imagine, well, how did, you know, if Satan has the power to whisk people around like that, why doesn't he just take Jesus to, uh, you know, 10,000 feet in the air and just drop him? <laughs> and so, uh, so there's no indication, first of all, that this may have been simply a vision in Jesus's mind, but also it may have been nothing of the sort. It may have been Jesus walking. We don't, we don't have any, uh, evidence after this of Jesus being in the wilderness. So maybe his wilderness time is done. It may have been Jesus just picking himself up and saying, okay, my fast is over. I've been 40 days in the wilderness. This is the symbolic passing of the of the uh, wilderness experience of, of Israel. And now I'm going to go into the, the land of Jerusalem. And so uh, maybe he walked there. In any case, the pinnacle of the temple um, would have been the southwest corner of the wall, we believe. And there is, in fact, uh, there was found a very notable stone at the base of that wall among the rubble, which was carved with the Hebrew inscription. And um, there's still the remnants of a a Roman-era arch coming out of that. It's called Robinson's Arch coming out of that wall. And you can, if you travel to Jerusalem today, you can uh, climb up. There's There's a wooden ramp there that gets you from the western wall area onto the Temple Mount itself. And right underneath that is where Robinson's Arch is. And so on that southwest corner is it would have been a little higher than today and and possibly as high as seven or eight stories, the top of the wall and then the buildings above the wall, the porch, uh, which is known as Solomon's Porch or Solomon's Portico, that would have extended even higher. If Jesus was standing on the roof there looking over the edge, um, there would have been a drop of anywhere from six to eight floors worth of uh, worth of height down onto hard stones below. And it would have been a very public place. This was um, this was the center of all of Jewry, and so the the high priests, uh, all of the worshippers, and the Romans they would have seen anything that happened there. And that this is when Satan appears again and says, "If again with the same attack, if you're the son of God, throw yourself, throw yourself from this pinnacle of the temple." Because it is written, now Satan's using scripture, because it is written, and uh, in case you're wondering, this is, um, sometimes our footnotes are complete about this kind of thing, and sometimes not, so depending on which uh, account you're reading. This is from Psalm 91, 11 and 12, and this is a beautiful poem about, Psalm 91, about what you can expect if you trust in God. And uh, it's it's kind of like the, the verses in the Doctrine and Covenants where it says, you know, I'll be on your left hand and your right hand, my angels round about you to bear you up. Um, so a similar thing is going on in Psalm 91. He's saying, God will be around you. His angels will have charge concerning you. And so much so that not even one of your, you, you can't even stub your toe. And the way it's expressed in the Bible is you, you can't dash your foot against a stone. So so Satan implies that that Jesus can throw himself from here and God won't let him even damage so much of his as his foot. But what's the big deal? What's the temptation to jump off the the pinnacle of the temple? Why? What does Jesus stand to gain? So uh, you have to remember that these are difficult temptations. This is there's no reason for Satan to tempt Jesus with something like, yeah, jump off, you'll get an adrenaline rush. Uh, that wasn't the temptation for Jesus. So a little bit of reflection can give us a few ideas. We don't know for sure, but uh, my idea is that. This would have been a very public act, and it would have been a very obvious and undeniable miracle. So had Jesus chosen to throw himself off of this, the pinnacle of the temple, or the top of this wall, the portico, down onto the flagstones below, it would have been visible to everyone in the entire courtyard. Uh, presumably people behind Jesus in the temple courtyard would have seen him jump off, and then they would have found out later that he's alive. Angels, maybe they would have been visible. 
Now, the question exists whether God would have actually saved Jesus if he had chosen to succumb to temptation, but we can't possibly know that. The point is, had Jesus believed it and tried it and it ha- and had it worked, it would have been uh, something that he could have used as proof. I'm the Messiah. It would have changed the course of his life. It would have changed his ministry from one where people had to choose to believe to where people were easily convinced by his reputation alone. All, all of the difficulties that he suffered with through the, his entire, through the next three years would have gone away. And that's what Satan was saying, was saying, Jesus, you are the son of God. If you're the son of God, why should you go through something so difficult as this ministry that you see approaching where people don't believe in you and they have to choose to humble themselves? You've got all these prideful people uh, in charge of the temple here. You can humble them right now and then everyone will have to listen to you. And Jesus is saying, and so Jesus responds again with a scripture. And he says, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now this is, uh, again, from the book of Deuteronomy. Um, what, what Satan is saying, change, let's change these things around. God, is, God has sent you to earth to test you. Why don't we reverse that? And if you really are the son of God, let's prove God. Let's make God show us that he's God rather than we show God that we believe in him. Because that's the way that Satan wants us to approach our lives. So remember, the first temptation is us to doubt who we are and to put this life of the body, our circumstances, ahead of this, this need we have for meaning and to, for connection with, our, with each other and with our Father in heaven. And now it's this, and now the temptation is once again to doubt who we are, but to reverse our relationship to God where he's proving himself to us rather than us proving ourselves to him. It's taking the whole nature of life and putting it on its head. And God has not made that promise to us that he is going to make us believe in him. He's going to prove himself to us so that we, we have no choice but to believe. I, I, I always go back to a wonderful talk a few years ago in conference by Elder Clayton called Choose to Believe. And he says in that talk, you're not going to believe, you're not going to be forced to believe anymore. You're not going to accidentally believe. He, the idea he expresses at the beginning is we all think that if we, if we just do what's right, then eventually we'll be put in this position where we're, gonna, we're just going to be compelled to believe. We're going we're gonna to believe as a matter of course, but you're not going to accidentally believe any more than you'll accidentally pray or pay your tithing. These are very conscious acts, and they're very specific acts. And belief is the same way. And what Satan is saying is, no, you gotta, you got to tell God that he has to make you believe. And so when people, you see this all over the place, when people have, when, they, when people struggle with their faith, they get into a position where they decide that God has to prove himself to them rather than the other way around. Look at the world, look at the suffering in the world, they say. Look at how much pain there is. Look at the fact that here is an evil person. There is evil in God's good world. And the Bible is silent on why this evil is there. And that's why it's so hard if you, if you don't have the benefit of modern revelation, it's so hard to figure out the answer to the question, why do, good things hap- why do bad things happen to good people? Because there's no answer. Why is evil even in the world? Why does it exist? If God created the world and said, behold, it is good, then what is evil doing here? As Lehi said, there must be opposition in all things. There's, there's a huge answer to this question. It's extremely profound and and very deep, far too deep for us to go into now. But the Bible is totally silent on that question. And so Satan is saying, because you don't know the answer to that question, let's reverse it. God proves himself to you. There's evil in the world. God has to show you why. He has to make you believe. And Jesus responds with with another reference to the Exodus. And he says, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now, so here's, here's another, here's another question. You know, if we've, if we were told in Malachi that we're going to prove, uh, God says, prove me now herewith. And Jesus says, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. These are similar words, but, and the answer is, uh, in the, there are, there are correspondence to the Greek words, perazo, which corresponds to the, the Hebrew word nasa, to test. 
in order to sound out a weakness. That's what Satan is doing to Jesus, Perazzo. And what we are what we are allowed to do or permitted to do or even encouraged to do to God is dokimadzo, which corresponds to the Hebrew word bachan, which is to examine. Uh, and, and one way it's translated in the, the King James Version is to assay. And an assayer is somebody who takes a precious metal and finds out whether it really is precious. So you get a lump of gold, and if you want to know the purity of this gold, when it's assayed or the silver, you, you know it's pure silver. So that's how we are to approach our Father in heaven when we prove him. is uh, we, wanna, we know that it's gold, and God wants us to, to verify that it is indeed pure gold, what he has given us and what he has commanded us to do and what he has asked us to believe in the kind of connection that he's asked us to make with him. When we prove him, we are assaying the value of that precious thing and finding out that it's 100% pure. And when Satan tempts us, he's, he's trying to sound out a weakness. And if he can't find one, he's trying to create one. He's trying to create a doubt where none existed before. And he's saying to Jesus, let's change the course of your life. Your, your circumstances are difficult. And I'm appealing to you because of your circumstances. God has given us our circumstances, and Jesus' response is, my circumstances, whether I'm hungry in the desert or whether I have this ministry that I'm looking forward to where people have to choose to believe me rather than being compelled to believe me, either way, I trust the Father. And, and what Satan is trying to do is, saying, is to say to Jesus, rather than trust the Father, why don't you take a shortcut? The ultimate shortcut is found next in the third temptation. And Jesus is carried into the top of a mountain. Now, nowhere in Jerusalem or even Israel, Galilee area, is there the top of a mountain uh, like we would know it and we would think of it as an extremely high mountain. Uh, The Mount of Transfiguration is notable because it rises sort of, it's sort of what we... There are a number of mountains in the United States, anyway, called Lone Mountain, where there's a mountain that stands apart from its neighbors, and that's sort of like the Mount of Transfiguration. But uh, Mount Carmel, uh, to the east and north of, of Galilee, is also a higher mountain, and it's a high place. And so Jesus may have, again, just left Jerusalem and walked up there. We certainly know that after this story, he finds himself ministering in, uh, or we next find him ministering in the Galilee region. And so it may be that he went by way of one of these higher mountains. And he had an experience there where uh, Satan is permitted to show him a vision of all the powers of the earth. And and then to say, if you'll worship me, and he's given up on trying to quote scripture and trying to get Jesus to uh, doubt who he is anymore. That hasn't worked. And so instead he shows him this vision of the powers of the earth And he says, if you'll worship me, all of this can be yours. So this is the third temptation. And again, uh, what what kind of kingdom? Now we get back to this idea that Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down one. And what what Satan is showing Jesus is all the power that he really does have. And Satan's power is certainly real. And at the same time, it's certainly a lie. And what I mean by that is, Satan's kingdom is exactly as big as the number of people who are willing to believe his distortions. And so what he's offering Jesus is, you can have the rule over all of these people. We have to presume that Satan was telling the truth when he made this offer. Otherwise, uh, I think Jesus would have seen right through it. So the offer is a real one. You can have power, but the only power Satan has to offer is power over all these people who have believed my lies up until this point. And you can command them to do anything that somebody who's listen, listening to Satan will do. What Jesus, is, what Jesus wants is to command people to be righteous. But that's not the kind of kingdom that Satan is offering. It's a kingdom of wick, wickedness. It's built on lies. And it may be, uh, and it, you know, if you, if you study who the Roman emperor was at this time, was a man named Tiberius. And Tiberius had been emperor for a long time. He was so concerned about the, pro- the prospect of being assassinated that he had removed himself from Rome to the Isle of Capri, which is this beautiful island off the coast of Naples and Pompeii. 
and he had his his palace was on the eastern slope of this island, which is a huge mountain overlooking the mainland of Italy. Tiberius ruled from there, and he he brought only people there who he knew were loyal to him, and he lived in a state of paranoia, and a state of utter hedonism. He ha- he would command the most disgusting of acts to be committed in his presence and if people didn't please him then he would he would have this this show occurring on this uh, eastern the the cliff top the eastern cliff top of his palace and if the people involved didn't please him he'd have them thrown from the cliff a thousand to die a thousand feet down on the rocks so this is the kind of person that that uh, had command over the entire world this is exactly the kind of kingdom that when you consider the, the misery of a man like Tiberius, even though he had everything in the whole world, he had all the power of the entire Roman Empire. This is, what, this is what Satan was offering Jesus. And he was saying, Jesus, you don't have to have an upside-down kingdom. Instead of the last shall be first and the first shall be last, why don't you have the first be first and the last be last? People who are powerful, let's let them have all of the power. And the people who are least powerful, let's let not let the meek inherit the earth, but let's let the meek inherit the dust and give all of their wealth to the king, the emperor, and the, the Roman general who is the strongest and who conquers. That's the kind of ruler I'm putting before you. You can shortcut this idea. You can substitute where you think your life should go for the idea that God has for you. The, the path that you have leads through suffering and pain, and it leads through other people not thinking much of you, not validating how important you are to their own salvation. And I can shortcut all of that by putting you in charge. This is the final temptation, and it's the hardest one for all of us. Was it hard for Jesus? I suspect this was easy for him, because he knew he would have, he would have been able to see exactly how miserable Tiberius was. And Satan would, have been, would not have been able to see that because Satan has no idea what happiness looks like. So Satan would have thought, well, all humans just want to be comfortable and to be in charge and they want power. He probably thought this was a very attractive offer. And Jesus says, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. And uh, just like the last quote from Jesus where he's at the pinnacle of the temple, this is another reference to the Exodus. So this, this time Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, so when, when he's at the top of the pinnacle of the temple, he says, uh, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. This was a further reference to Exodus chapter 17. Uh, when, when Israel said, is God even here with us? Should we have come out from Egypt at all? We don't have any water to drink. And that's, this is when uh, Moses had to smite the rock with his rod and bring, and bring forth water miraculously. And later on, that place was named with a certain name uh, as a, the place where Israel tempted God. And they did that in the sense of trying to, uh, the, the negative sense, trying to sound out a weakness in God. Is God really here for us? And God is commanding them, don't you don't put God to the test that way. You trust in God instead. So that was Jesus' response to jumping off the temple. And here's his response from the same chapter in Deuteronomy, which is a little bit later on, uh, Deuteronomy 6.13. Thou shalt, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, him only shalt thou serve. So again, he's saying, I trust in God. God has ordained a path for me. And I believe enough in him that I don't need to shortcut it. And I don't need to take your idea, Satan, of what my life should look like. And, and I don't need to change my circumstances in order to have this connection. All three of these temptations, they, they are different a little bit, but they all, they all strengthen and build together this idea that we trust in God, we're loyal to God, and we don't allow our circumstances to dictate whether we believe in him, but instead we allow our belief in God to dictate our attitude and our connection towards him regardless of what happens in our earthly life, because man does not live by bread alone. We worship God only. We don't tempt the Lord our God. We don't put him to the test. He puts us to the test. And then the last thing that Jesus does is, he says, 
Now, Satan, get out of here. Get out of here. Get thee hence, Satan, is uh, what we would consider a polite way, but when this was translated, that's what it meant. So he said, it is written, I'm not going to do that. Get out of here. And that's the final lesson for us is when we have seen through a temptation to the lie underneath it, then we don't sit around listening to what it might, what else it might have to say to us. And maybe that, maybe that offer of the, you know, taking the place of Tiberius as the Roman emperor, maybe it gets a little more attractive the longer we look at it. We say, we look that temptation squarely in the eye and we say, get out of here. Now there's one other time when we hear Jesus utter these words. And that is right after, it's interesting, right after uh, Peter says, he says, uh, you know, everybody says you're John the Baptist or you're this prophet or that prophet come back to life. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, we know that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And this is when Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood has not revealed it to you. And then Jesus starts explaining to them, I'm going to now go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer a lot of things and I'm going to die and be and be resurrected on the third day. He's getting more and more explicit in what he explains to his disciples. And Peter takes him aside and says, uh, and rebukes him, as it says, <laughs> rebukes Jesus and says, look, you're, you're not going to die. That's, that's not what messiahs do. You're the king. Kings conquer. When, when are you going to start acting in this way that when, when is this kingdom going to become the first shall be first? And Jesus says the same thing. He says, get out of here. Get behind me, Satan. He says those words. So anytime that the, the purpose of Jesus is questioned, he's once again given the opportunity. Jesus, why don't you take an earthly kingdom? Why don't you forego the suffering that God has, has ordained for your life and instead do something far more comfortable for yourself? That's when Jesus looks that temptation squarely in the eye and says, get out of here. I trust God with everything. My life is far more than, than the life of the body alone. I live by far more than bread alone. My, my happiness is not dictated by my circumstances. I live in connection with God and with everyone else, and nothing else is important. It may be hard for me to be hungry in the wilderness. It may be difficult for me to perform my miracles one at a time so that people have to hear about it by rumor and they have to choose to believe. And it may be difficult that my, my kingdom is upside down and instead of being the one that everyone serves, I'm the servant of all. That may be the least comfortable way I could go through this life. But the trust of God that I have won't allow me to question it at all. Not for a moment. And if anybody comes to me and tries to get me to question it, I'm going to tell them to get out of here. Even somebody who has just confessed that the Spirit told them that I'm the Messiah. So that is Jesus' attitude towards temptation. He was willing to have the truth be revealed about him. Because he was the person that went through this wilderness trial that Israel failed at. Jesus went through it for them. Not as their replacement, but as their king. And he completed their trial. He was the first person. He could, and, and, and there's a bigger layer to this, which is not that Jesus, Jesus did this for more than just the, the people of the Jews. He completed Israel's trial, but he also resisted the temptation of Satan that Adam himself and Eve failed to resist. And so he has proven that not only is he the, the king and the Messiah and the savior of Israel, but he is the first human being of all human beings that is someone God can actually trust and believe in. So right here at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, he suffered more than any mortal can suffer. He's taken upon himself the sort of path where he's the servant of all. And, he, and he's fresh off of his baptism where he took upon himself the mantle of the prophet and of the Savior. It's so clear that Jesus wanted us to receive this message, that he purposely related the, the facts of his experience in the desert and in, in the temple and in the mountain 
to his disciples so that it would reach us. It's just like the Book of Mormon. It's a voice calling from the dust to saying, here are the forms that your temptations will take. And here are the attitudes and the teachings that you need to resist them. If you will only trust God and recognize that we don't live by bread alone, that the body is not everything there is, but it's this connection with our Heavenly Father that extends beyond the grave. That is the life, that is the meaning of your life, and there is no shortcut. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.